0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Dirt Talk. It's been a little bit. I took a few weeks off because I was running around the country. I did 21 states in the past few weeks here, but we are back. I'm Aaron Witt. I'm president of BuildWit. We are on a mission to make the dirt world a better place and continuing to interview some awesome people in the dirt world. Today, I have James Milburn. He's the principal, managing principal, technical terms, at Milburn Demolition out of Chicago, Illinois. I appreciate you joining us today, James.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on board here. So how'd you even find demolition? Because it's kind of an oddball industry, and I don't think a lot of people think about it, even when they work around it. How'd you even wind up in the demolition space?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so demolition, was. I kind of fell into it in my college days. I was at Purdue University in the construction management program. And I was lucky enough to be there at the same time that the National Demolition Association was trying to gain some involvement at the college level. And so I was looking for some involvement in associations just to kind of gain a little more specialty in my, with my degree. And when I was looking to do that, the Dan DA was very present. And so I joined as a, as an officer of the first student chapter at Purdue, took the first uh, demolition courses there, got an internship uh, with a local company in Chicago, as well as an internship with a with like a traveling industrial demolition firm out of Buffalo, New York. And I ended up graduating and staying with them just because I enjoyed it so much. And, um, I was a road toad, you know, I was on the road all the time. Well, I think 26 out of 31 days every month. Jeez. So I, I worked hard. I learned fast because I was working so many hours and, uh, I just, just loved the whole industry. Met a lot of great people and decided, you know, it, it was for me. And I, I have no reason to look for a career elsewhere.
0: What were your, first thoughts, experiences of demolition? I mean, your first demolition projects, like what what were you thinking as you're checking these projects out?
1: Well, it's funny because you mentioned first thoughts of demolition. Well, the first thought of demolition is always blowing shit up, right? Yeah, That's what everybody thinks of. And that's like less than 1% of all demolitions. So <laughs> first and foremost, your dreams are shattered day one when it comes to that. And so when I started as my first internship, you know, I was with a company in Chicago and we did primarily interior selective demolition we did total demolition as well, but I just I wasn't on any of those job sites. My first experience was inside of a downtown Chicago high rise that was getting fully gutted. Working nights, dusty, dirty, hot—all those good things, <laughs> you know. So that was my first experience of it. I'm not sure if I even answered your question, but
0: yeah, what's so appealing about demolition? I mean, what do you what do you like about it? What's what do you enjoy? What's drawn you to it?
1: You know, I think my favorite part about it is it's one of those trades where we get to be like super creative. You know, plans and specs and drawings and scopes of work, all they tell you is you got to make this stuff go away, right? Yeah. What they don't tell you is how you have to do it or what your timeline is. Usually, um, it's pretty well up to you to decide, at least within reason. And so we get to be really creative on how we attack certain projects, how we how we remove debris from buildings, you know, like a, getting creative with chutes and lifts and cranes and all sorts of different things. And and to be honest, no job is identical. And so that's kind of what I really enjoy about it. It's light on paperwork compared to most trades and heavy on creativity and, and just overall production. So,
0: It is kind of interesting because you, I mean, the whole building trades, it's, it's all, you know, here's exactly what we need. And you guys, it's just, we just need this end result. We don't really care how you get there as long as it's safe, economical, and doesn't make a mess.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So... You were working in the demolition industry. At what point do you think starting a company is a great idea? And what, what was the need for a company? Why, why go off and do that?
1: So after I, I wrapped up my traveling demolition career, I decided I wanted to get back home to Chicago and kind of start to live a more traditional lifestyle, I suppose, you know, living at home every night. I got a job with, a, with another company in Chicago where I was an estimator and project manager for interior and partial structure demolition. And I just really found a knack for it. I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. I, you know, to be honest, I really enjoyed working with at the company that I was at. It's just most demolition contractors, especially in Chicago, are you know, what you call smaller family-owned businesses. There's no sort of ladder system to increase your career other than, you know, standard raises every two, three years as if you're being successful and producing, you know, volume and, and profit, obviously. So at some point, you know, five, six years in, I was just kind of like, in the end in sight as far as growth. And so I kind of had two options. I basically, I go work, go again and work for like a na- national, international consulting firm as a, as a demolition consultant, which would put me on the road, you know, 60%. And I had a family, I had a young family, I still have a young family. At that point, I think I had only two children and a wife and a new house. And, you know, traveling just wasn't the best option for me. Financially, it would have been a great option. And, and risk-wise, it would have been a great option because there was basically no risk and the money would, would have been great. But I just, I didn't want to be away from my family. So the only other option I could see was to start my own demolition contracting business and give it a go on my own, do things the way I thought they, they should be done. And, and so we made the decision at that point, me and my wife, to go for it.
0: Is that like one conversation? What is that? How does that shake out? I mean, how do you go from, well, there's there's just no upward mobility, but I don't want to travel to starting a company. Like, that just doesn't seem like the natural option. And I know she was a big part of that decision. I mean, what was that process even like yeah, deciding I, to do that?
1: Oh, man, that was tough because, you know, to be honest, she was supportive either way. I mean, it wasn't her decision for me not to travel, although she didn't like the idea of raising the kids solo for most of the month. But, you know, she understood both sides just as well as I did. Uh, and And I think, Honestly, the, the decision maker was probably just consistent conversation and, and budgeting and, and just thinking about financial concerns and risk concerns. And the only downside that we could think of was just the financial risk if it didn't go like we thought it was going to go. And so we decided kind of, I would say this is over the course of a few months that that risk was worth it at this time in our lives. There was still, there's still plenty of time to rebound if something were to happen. And luckily we both have really strong family supports from both of our parents and so it kind of just fell into place you know, I ended up doing some business planning and some you know had some just unsuccessful discussions with banks and which I'm sure you're you're familiar with very and um you know what well, you you find a way to make it work and so that's that's just what we decided to do
0: yeah it's it's funny you say that because I got an email this morning saying I was declined for a line of credit that I was previously approved for a few weeks ago and, uh, wonderful yeah yeah so that's gonna be a really fun conversation with my banker because I am I'm pretty pissed off about that but uh, anyway financially how do you get a company off the ground because demolition it's still it's very capitally intensive so what are the steps to forming a company after being an employee do you have to quit and then go do all this or are you doing it while you're still working what does that look like
1: yeah so there's a there's a fine line between you know what I would call I don't know what the term would be here, cheating yeah. um, <laughs> and doing things legally versus illegally when it comes to your, what you owe the, you know, your current employer. Yeah. And so what I did was I kind of did the bare minimum setup stuff. You know, let's say in December, I made the decision that this is what I wanted to do. I did some preliminary planning, it's some budgeting and stuff like that. But I continued to bust my ass for the company I was working for and no one not my best friend, not anybody knew that I was doing that. Certainly no customers knew I was doing it because I was, I was all about trying to get as much work as I could for my current company until, until the day I wasn't working there. So basically I kept that up. And then, and then there was a point in time where I said, you know, this has got to be the time because I can't, I can't keep performing for them if I go any further. And so I, you know, I went into the owner's office and told Mm -hmm. him that I, I was sorry for coming in like this at, at 5.30 p.m. when he was getting ready to leave. But, you know, I had to tell him that I, you know, I was giving him my two weeks notice. I was moving on, doing something I thought was better for me and my family. And uh, when he asked what I was doing, I said, well, I think I'm going to try my luck at uh, in the demolition field just like you did. So I don't know how serious I was taken at that point. Probably not very seriously because I was pretty young, yeah, but that's how that went. And so then I would say after that, we both decided that it was best for all parties if I kind of wrapped up that week and moved on, you know, once other employees knew that I was going to do my own thing and customers, et cetera, you know, it wouldn't be a good thing for me to still be working there. So I wrapped up everything that I could handed everything over and said bye on Friday.
0: What what was everyone's reaction to you going off on your own, especially the owner? Did he tell you to go pound sand or since you're essentially going to go be a competitor or was it friendly, you know, Hey, you know, I've been there. Good luck. Or what was everyone's reaction to that?
1: You know, I'd say it was right dead in the middle yeah. of the two of those. Right, yeah. so it was, it was number one. I think I really did think I, I caught them off guard, obviously, because we were enjoying success. I mean, we were we were working well together. Everything was was good. There was no you know negativity that would lead me, you know, to want to to want to leave or anything like on bad terms. So I think there was some understanding on on their end because they had done the same thing, you know, theoretically the same thing fifteen years earlier. Yep. But there was also the obvious like, well, now you're a competitor and now you're going to try and come in and take business that we can only get. So, you know, I would say there wasn't complete negative pound stand response, but it also wasn't good luck taking market share.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> You know, it was, it was, some, it was somewhere, it was somewhere in between, Gotcha, which I certainly appreciate. You know, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That's,
0: it makes sense now. It's a hard,
1: hard subject to deal with, you know,
0: no kidding. Money, I mean, where, where did you get the money to start? Because you probably had a little bit saved up, but I can't imagine you had all the money you you needed to start a company. So what what did it look like financially kind of early on?
1: No, you know, obviously all my assets, my mortgage, everything I had was basically signed over to a bank as collateral. I did, I emptied all my, my retirement and all that good stuff and figured that I had enough to get me by until i got some large contracts that had payroll you know heavy payroll associated on a weekly basis so i basically got enough to buy some initial equipment when i say equipment for us at that point i'm talking hand tools sawzalls, chipping hammers wrecking bars yeah. ladder you know and i'm not talking about excavators or high reaches it still adds up man. and uh, so i had enough to buy some of that stuff to get moving got a couple jobs under my belt without any outside funding and i was able to negotiate basically a loan from my parents to cover the first couple of large contracts I had. And basically what it was is it was a loan. It was basically a line of credit with a good size percentage attached to it. They would loan me the money for based on my exact payroll costs and I would pay them back upon receiving payment. Was that, uh, and so was it that was idea a very fortunate. Or their idea. That, well, they it was both. I mean, I think I kind of had a, I, I had a good feeling that would work. Before I started the business, or I might I might have started it in a different fashion. That comes back to like how fast you want to grow. Yeah. So if I didn't if I didn't have that option, what I probably would have had to do is I would have been in the field more, myself, not paying myself and saving money that way. But the problem with that is then sales would, would never really increase. Yeah. Enough to kind of climb the pump, so to speak. So I, I didn't think there was any option there. That's kind of like how I had to do it. Once we did that for I'd say six months or so we were blessed to get the amount of business that we got and I was running, you know, real lean. I mean, my overhead consisted of myself. So, you know, you collect money in a reasonable time, you pay it back, you take that, you know, take what's left and you just keep rolling it back in and rolling it back in. And, and that's just was a constant occurrence. And to be honest, it still is a constant occurrence. I mean, a uh, year and a half in, I think we were finally able to talk a good bank into, into taking us on for an official bank line of credit. And then, about a year after that, you know, they removed my parents from all the guarantees and everything. So, I would say two and a half years into business, we were fully—I was fully on my own as far as collateral. And luckily, we have been fortunate to have, I mean, we have great customers. We get—we get paid. You know, we don't have to worry too much about just not getting paid. And although it does take a while to get paid, it's a whole different story when you have to worry about not getting it at all. Um, yeah. So we've been able to just to keep, keep cruising that way and keep growing and, and growing fast. And it's been tough. I mean, it, there's definitely some late night hours where you're worrying about how you're going to make next week's payroll. I mean, that's, that's that was a pretty constant occurrence for the first five years, I would say. And just this last year, maybe we've been kind of at a point where we got the reserves built up and, and we're able to kind of run without that daily worry.
0: I think early on, you guys have grown really fast. And I guess there's two ways to do it. I see a lot of owners, they're, they're out in the field like you were talking about. They're out in the field doing the work because they have to out of out of necessity, but they don't they don't necessarily step back and, and operate the business. Now you you have this really unique partnership with Don. At what point did he come into the picture? And at what point did you know that when did you realize you can't keep up with all the field operations and you might not be the best person for that? Because I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to actually understand that as a business owner. At what point did did that conversation come about and when did Don come on board?
1: So I met Don, you know, a while back before I started the business, he was working for a saw cutting and, 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 robotic demolition company. And we did some work together as like a partner trade. And so I got to know him a little bit that way. And I knew he, I knew his knowledge was incredible in the market we were in and we, we always got along, which was, which was crucial, right? We always got along. I mean, there was no extra fluff on our relationship by any means, but we got along respected each other. And about six months in, I, I was looking at all the jobs that I under contract with that hadn't started yet. And I'm like, once June 1st hits, we're going to be like really screwed if we don't have somebody else running the field here. Cause it, I'll be the first and last to tell you the field operation for demolition is not my strong suit. now I'm not a dummy when it comes to it by any means, but I haven't had my boots on the ground nearly as long as, as he has in order to be able to, you know, to run that side of things. So we had a conversation, I would say probably four months in the problem at that point was I couldn't afford it and you know, I could barely afford myself at that point. So that was kind of a couple of weeks of thinking and, and discussing it again with, you know, with my wife and, and my parents and just saying, listen, I mean, if we're going to keep growing and we're not going to crash after this, after this busy cycle hits this summer, we got to bring in somebody that we can trust and that knows what the hell they're doing on that side. So me and Don came, worked out a deal. And it was, he took a little bit, I would say, I'm not sure if he took a cut cause I don't know what he was making before, but, he took a risk on us. We took a risk on him, and the rest is history. I would say it's worked out great. Yeah. We complement each other well. We both we both enjoy and are successful at opposite sides of the business. So that's so is a very clear division for us, which just makes an awesome uh, partnership.
0: It's yeah, it's really unique. I mean, you guys it you work really really well together, and I guess demolition too, like moving dirt you do need experience at it. Some people are better than others. You know, the more experienced you, typically the better you can do it. But I mean, moving dirt's moving dirt. It's pretty straightforward. Whereas demolition, I feel like experience really matters because there's just, you just need a decade, two decades of experiencing all different sorts of weird problems to somewhat know how to do things. And I feel like that's what Don has is he has, he's brilliant, but he has that experience that you as a young person really didn't have to do that. Is experience a little bit more important in demolition? I don't, I don't know if you can I, say it's more important, but it's, it's yeah, a huge part of it.
1: Yeah, I can't comment on the dirt stuff. I mean, that's just nothing I've, I've never been involved in. Obviously, I've been around it. I've seen it. But I mean, with demolition, there's so many different conditions that arise, especially when you start messing around with existing structures that are partially going to remain, and you get into you know shoring, bracing, saw cutting, precast removal, all those kinds of things that we like to do. You can work in this industry 30 years and not see it all, but there's people that have seen more of it than others. Rain right? and Don's one of those. He's been in his industry, doing what we do since he was, I, I think, 17, and full time. You know, no college. He went to the he calls it the College of Hard Knocks, I believe. Yep, which is true. And to be honest, for a field side team member, that's exactly what you want. There was no wasted days in his life when it came to experience. So, uh, you know, we have a relatively young field operations manager or director of field operations that has just as much experience in the field as some people that are 10, 15 years older than him. Wow. So it's kind of the perfect blend I would say.
0: I've already interviewed Don. So if you haven't listened to that one, definitely go back. I forget what episode number it is, but he has a, a wild story too. He started out when he was just a kid and he had a kid at the time to support. That's how he got into demolition kind of by accident. But as far as the The demolition industry in general, I know I've talked to you at length and Don at length about the problems of the industry and the, some of the frustrations you guys have had from, from previous experiences and not even pointing at, you know, one company. It's, I think it's like a largely an industry wide, a lot of the, most of the problems are industry wide. What are some of the problems in the demolition industry that you guys are trying to change? You know, the negative perceptions, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, there's a bunch. I mean, I would think a lot of them are very comparable to general construction trade issues as far as aging mentality is what I'll call it. Yeah. But demolition specific, because that's where my experience is, there's a lot of companies that are just doing the same thing they've always done because it's worked and it continues to work. Although we feel like our way works better. People aren't thought of, especially labor, field labor, they aren't really thought of as people. They're thought of as tools, right? I can get anybody to tear down a wall and pay them X amount and and move on. And that's, that's the opposite of, of our mentality from the start. And I think that's another reason why Don and I get along so well, we have the same, same mentality on that one. The people are the most important thing without the person that's servicing the machine, loading the truck and doing the actual demolition work. We don't have an opportunity to, to do any of our work. So, I don't have an opportunity to sell work. I don't have, an opportunity, you know, nothing happens without them. So if they're just thought of as a tool, that's in my book, a recipe for disaster. So that along with technology implementation, safety culture, just general team culture is I think what we've really tried to, to put a big focus on. And I think that it's setting us apart, at least I hope it is. And certainly is the only reason we've grown as fast as we have. Our hiring occurs, especially our field level hiring, occurs now because people like to work here and they recommend their friends and their friends come and their cousins and their brothers. It's the word of mouth of the people that work with boots on the ground that really help us be able to accomplish what we do.
0: Imagine that.
1: Uh, Yeah. And the other thing that I forgot to mention, I'll mention it a little bit quicker is just general service minded company culture. So a a lot of the old school guys are like, take this proposal or leave it. We're not doing it any different way. If you're a general contractor and you're telling me how to do my job, I just we either either take it or leave it, you know. And we're uh, we're a little more flexible, and that's because we under, I mean, I understand that without the, the general contractor and the owner that's hiring us, I mean, we're not getting any business. And uh, we do probably ninety percent private work, so all of our work is is through our customer base. There's no there's not much of the straight low bid public opening type of atmosphere here. So focusing on service, even if it means we're gonna sacrifice some production or some profits on a one individual project. It's something that we do just to make sure that our customers are happy.
0: Gotcha. Why is your work even necessary? I mean, what purpose does demolition serve in the world?
1: Oh man. I mean, you know, the world built up, right? So like, especially in Chicago and I mean, really in anywhere, I mean, if, if you're developing new, new and fresh buildings, industrial property, manufacturing, hospitals, residential, anything, you name it. I mean, the, without getting rid of the old, the new doesn't happen. And so it's one of those things. It's like, I mean, I hate, a lot of people probably consider it a necessary evil, but but regardless of what you consider it, it's, it's, it's a necessity and it, and it happens a lot more than people think. A lot of times we're just inside buildings, you know, clearing out buildings and people don't even know we're there, but that's how you get a new office built for somebody. The first step is removing the old stuff. So it's definitely a necessity.
0: Your work's kind of crazy too. I mean, you'll be gutting an entire building. Like we just visited a building not too long ago, right next to the Sears Tower, Willis Tower, downtown Chicago, you know, high rises everywhere. You guys are just scraping floor after floor after floor. It was like 14 floors or 12 floors, something like that. A lot of different floors. And outside you have like a dumpster. You have no idea you guys are working in there. And yet you have skid steers knocking shit off the roof, the ceiling, and guys just sprawled out all over these floors, peeling up, you know, tile and and I mean scraping these things to and then the, the finished floors are just spotless. But everyone out outside of that has no clue you're there.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that's exactly how we like it. Yeah. If, if especially in downtown Chicago or any other populated area, if nobody knows you're there, that's the best way that, that means we're doing our job.
0: What's the, like, the nature of the work? Because I know you started by saying, yeah, people think demolition is just blowing buildings up and it's just, it's not the case. What, what does demolition look like in the real world?
1: I mean, the real world. So again, Chicago is kind of a standalone market, I would say, but, you know, to do the heavy concentration of people and buildings and land, you know, a lot of the demolition is, is repurposing of existing buildings. So it's, we're going inside a building. And like you mentioned, that's the 15 story building that you're referring to. Was an adaptive reuse, so they're taking a building that was occupied by uh, City College of Chicago, I believe, and they were converting it into a hotel. Mm. And so, in order to do that, you clean out all the walls, all the flooring, all the ceilings, all the MEP infrastructure, because it's all got to be replaced with the new layouts and with the new, you know, with upgraded systems. And then you add in the component of structural alteration. So if there's a new elevator going in, there's slab openings, you know, slab openings on 15 floor stack. Stair removal, you name it, all that all that happens, and it happens a lot, especially here. I can only comment in Chicago because we do majority of our business. But you know, the other facet of demolition is obviously the total total building removal, which is what people would more commonly associate the term demolition to, is just taking out a full structure. Like let's say there's a three story old structure on a property, uh, and developer wants to put up a ten story. Well, obviously the three stories got to go bye bye, including uh, foundation, footing, slab on grades, and so that's that's the other side of the coin is tearing down the full building. That can look a lot different depending on what's all around the building. If it's a wide open site versus, you know, a tight, a tight zero edge site in downtown Chicago, that can look a lot different. So a lot of differences in the type of demolition that that we can do.
0: Do you have any just wacky projects that you guys have done that were just either just a total mess or you learned a lot on? I mean, do you have any stories as far as just crazy projects? Oh my gosh.
1: Uh, well, we could be, probably be uh, here absolutely. all day.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, the double dinosaur cooling tower on the 23rd floor of a building downtown Chicago with a sloped roof that you can't walk on. Um, <laughs> and obviously you can't close down the entire financial district of Chicago to put a crane on the street. So somebody calls you says, "Hey, can your you with this cooling tower. And we're like, absolutely. And then we go out walking like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is, you know, how are we going to do this? And so we work through our planning process with the owner, totally transparent with what our, requirements would be and, and what the cost would be associated with that. And they start to budget these things in and, and they end up happening. And so this 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 job I'm thinking of here, we ended up building a scaffold platform and partial wrap of the cooling towers and basically disassembled it from the inside and downsized it and, and ran all the material in the building and down a very small freight elevator. And so it's uh, it was a very successful job, very challenging job, you know, no incidents, but certainly could have gone better. But again, these the biggest challenge and the, and the biggest reason I like demolition, at least the type of demolition we do is no two jobs are alike. So you can't just take a production rate that you use on another job and transplant it to the next one. It's, you got to totally start from scratch and plan the job out, start to finish to make sure, you know, your numbers and your schedule make sense.
0: What, what's the estimating process look like for something like that? I mean, what, what are kind of the steps? What do you have to think through before you, you can, you can even give them a number for what you can do it for?
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the, the first step of estimating is receiving an invitation to bid of some sort, uh, whether it's formal or phone call, you know, getting the scope figured out. And then really for demolition, it's all about access and logistics. I mean, it, so how you're getting the material and how you're getting the material out of the building or, or out of the site in the, in the case of total demolition. And so the problem is a lot of times we, we're asked to bid a job and there's no set logistics. And, and we're trying to explain to customers that this could change the number by 50% if hmm. if we're not able to do it this way. Mm. And so part of what we try and do is we try and get in on the front end of these jobs in the budgeting phases with free estimating, free planning for our customers to try and explain to them that what's basically what the options are. And so when the job comes to a final bid scenario, everyone's on the same page as far as those logistical challenges go so that you're able to actually bid on something that's, that's going to actually be able to be done that way. I mean, otherwise these bids mean nothing. If I exclude the world and, qualify everything it's great if i get the low number but if we come in and and say we got to do it this way and they say well you can't i mean that that number just went right out the window yeah and that creates a, an argument and that's what we try and
0: avoid well some of the old school people like arguments but
1: love um, it love <laughs> it
0: <laughs> all right water up let's let's go but um mm-hmm. i wish i could explain how how crazy some of the access is for these projects because it's it's I didn't realize. I mean, we would go to like the 20th story of a building. You'd have guys in there scraping the floor clean. So all the walls, all the mechanical, everything's coming out of that floor, except for the windows, you know, the surrounding and then, and then the core and the, the structural elements. But everything else is wiped clean. And then they put it into these like little garbage bins on wheels and then just wheel it into the elevator, the freight elevator, which is not that big. It's like it almost a little bit bigger than a normal elevator. A lot of these I've been in, they put it all the way down to the bottom. They load the freight elevator up with the empty ones, take the the full ones out out to the dumpster. A skid steer throws it, you know, empties it into a dumpster, and then they do it all over again for the entire floor. The access thing is is nuts for some of this work.
1: Yeah, we're lucky if we get the skid steer at the dock. You know, I mean, a, <laughs> lot, a lot of times that's not possible. That's that's a that's an added bonus there.
0: Yeah. Well, I've seen that too. I mean, that what yeah.
1: what yeah, what you just described is, is a... Prime example of like the pre-planning portion. So even if we're just bidding a job, I mean, we always try and walk the job, especially the full access. So like from the point of work to wherever our loadout is going to occur, we need to understand that, and so does the the customer. And we have a, obviously working in Chicago for so long, all of our estimators are start you know they know the buildings, they know which buildings have good freight elevators and which ones have bad freight elevators, and which ones you know there's another challenge is what you just talked about, except now above you is the building split 20 floors office, 20 floors condos. Okay. So you can't make noise during the day because the office gets interrupted. Yeah. You can't, and you can't make noise at night because then people are sleeping in the condo club.
0: Uh-huh.
1: You get about a three hour to four hour window of time to make noise. And also you don't get to have a dumpster stock because the condo association doesn't allow it. So it gets it, <laughs> you can imagine the price or the time increase that, that's associated with situations like that. So, if you don't know all those things going into jobs, I mean, you can, your, your guest is going to be off. To
0: it's say that. Well, And that's that's another point. I mean, a lot of this work is at night. Almost the majority of your crews operate overnight, don't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, for the interior selective demolition, we're yeah. probably 75% nighttime for that.
0: Wow.
1: The daytime exceptions would be like hospital work's always during the day, hotel work's always during the day, um, and obviously like school work when school's out of session and stuff like that. But, I mean, office, commercial, is typically at night.
0: Have you, during the estimating process, you know, you give it your best shot, you go to do the job and you forgot something or you missed something and you're just like, oh no. I mean, what have we done? Have you got yourself into that situation? Uh,
1: I wish I could say no, but yeah, I mean, multiple <laughs> times, right? So, you know, as, the, as you progress with your estimating technique and what the tools you use to estimate, I mean, you know, we primarily still use a combination of an on-screen takeoff and then Excel for our estimates, right? And I remember early on I was when I was still wearing way more hats than I should have been, you know, in the morning I was doing payroll. In the afternoon I was doing estimates and sending proposals out. And in the evening I was loading trucks and delivering tools to a job site. Jeez. And so you can imagine your mind's going all different directions. And yeah. so I did a pretty sizable job and forgot to put the walls in the bed. So, oh. uh, I got, I got, I had a really happy customer who thought he had a really cheap, <laughs> really cheap, aggressive price. And, uh, at first, I was happy too, and so I relooked at my estimate to turn it into a job file, and realized, you know, I was luckily it wasn't too big of a job. I mean, it was it was probably 15,000 square feet of office space. So I think my my dumpster count was half of what it should have been. If I should have had twenty dumpsters, I only had ten, oh, which man. means I also only had labor associated to haul out ten dumpsters worth of material. So first and foremost, it's my mistake. I gave my customer a bid. He went to his customer with that number, and so I I stuck to it. We did the job. Tuck your tail, finish the work, keep the customer happy, and if everything goes well, at the end of the job, you let them know that you took one for the team, and hope they remember. You know, that's all that's all you can do. Yeah, it it happens more than you think. I think if there is if there's anyone out there that says it hasn't happened to them, they're lying. I, I would I would say yeah for you know a variety of reasons. There's there's so many ways you can screw up calculations, but mainly it's around mainly it's around volume of debris. If you mess that up, all the labor is going to be messed up as well.
0: Can you touch on the, where all the debris goes and the environmental side of this? Because a lot of it, like the steel, you know, is recycled in concrete. What does that look like as far as demolition debris?
1: You know, a lot of people, that's funny you brought that up. A lot of people consider demolition to be like an environmentally bad business, but I would, I would argue the complete opposite. I mean, if you're on a total demolition project, assuming there's no massive amounts of asbestos or lead contamination or a variety of other hazards, you know, you're taking concrete, and steel and you're recycling every piece that you can mm-hmm. there's no reason not to
0: yeah
1: as far as the interior finishes go that like gets a little more challenging with dirty wet drywall materials and stuff like that it's a little bit more challenging but in chicago we have a, a couple of, of waste hauling and recycling firms that you basically load dumpsters with mixed c and d and they take it to their sorting facility they throw it on a belt and they hand pick everything out and sort it into commodities and recycle the commodities individually so it's basically like we just got to do our best to separate the metal and anything that's non-recyclable, but all the all the mixed C and D can kind of go to the same spot, and and we can count on doing it that way. We can count on typically eighty to ninety percent landfill diversion.
0: That's nuts. Which you,
1: is very impressive.
0: Well, there's a whole part of the business based on commodities and and commodity prices and demolition companies. You know, buying entire plants. And do you own that steel when you go demolish something, or does the project owner own that what what is the ownership of the materials actually look like because there's money involved in that
1: oh yeah i mean that's a that's a big mix a big spread it's it's a largely based on contract setup and and
0: bid documents
1: and the owner right some owners they say this property and you demolish it and i want the lowest price including all your salvage value sign on the dotted line it's all yours Mm. Uh, there's some owners that are a little more hands-on with salvage value and and commodity returns and so they're more or less open book projects where all they want you to do is figure the demolition time, the equipment and the labor involved and anything that has to be disposed of. And then they want you to, to state your estimated, estimated tonnage of salvage, of salvage metal or, or, or sellable assets. Gotcha. You know, like generators, chillers, all sorts of stuff that people buy. Yeah. And then that part of it runs open book where they either do a profit split or it's just written in where the owner gets it all. It's just a very far spread. I don't know which is preferable. Probably just depends on you know a lot of different things like who you're bidding against, what the scrap market's like, all that kind of stuff. The other concern there is a lot of people hedge their hedge their bids on the scrap market with no specific contract stipulation on the scrap rate staying where it is. And uh-huh. so when that happens, your your risk reward right there. You know you you bid it at 150 bucks a ton and it goes down to 75, you're probably going to be in a rough spot. If you bid it at 100 bucks a ton and it goes up to 300, then you're going to be real happy. So, yeah. It's, and there's a lot of people when the when the market goes down and they and they got a lot of a lot of scraps they sit on it and wait for the market to go up and that's just individual decision making as far as what their level of risk is as a business owner and, and cash flow and all sorts of other things space you know do you have yard space to sit on it can you leave it on a job site and you know, there's all these things that come into play there so
0: yeah yeah there's there's some gambling yeah. involved there I've, and I've heard oh, of yeah. demolition companies they get caught with their pants down every once in a while when they go buy a big plant and then the commodity price just falls through the floor.
1: You know, when you get into plant purchasing and redevelopment and that's a whole other ballgame, that's a whole other level of risk involved there. And honestly, a whole, other, a whole other level of capital involved, obviously that you have to have. We haven't gone there yet and I don't really have a high level of interest yet. Not to say we won't ever, but the other thing that you that you didn't mention there is the environmental concerns are, are usually is the real thing to gamble on when it comes mm. to that, that property, the industrial acquisition and redevelopment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It depends on the, the terms of the purchase and who owns the environmental hazard. There's all these things that come into play there that end up being a, a big risk.
0: Yeah. yeah. To, wor-
1: to worry about one way or the other, <laughs> depending on their experience and, and their thoughts about it.
0: So. Start, start digging in the dirt's glowing. I know there's a lot of mm. messed up environmental sites, especially in the Midwest. Um, oh yeah. So safety, it's a big concern industry-wide, every company, this and this and that. But the safety concerns of demolition and demolition sites of all the sites I've been to are probably the most hazardous. And it, because there's just so much going on from all different angles, you're in confined spaces. It's, it's, there, there's a lot happening in, in these demolition sites, especially interior demo. Total demo, I think it's a little... I would say, me personally, I'd say it's a little less hazardous because you kind of know what's going on, this and that. But interior demo, there's just, it's crazy. And it looks like total chaos if you don't actually know what you're looking at. How do you guys think through safety? Because, uh, I mean, from day one, I've been, and I'm not just saying this, it just remarkably impressed with how diligent you guys are about safety, how serious you are, and how serious all your people are. They just seem to get it, everybody. How have you guys instilled that sense of importance in safety in all your people?
1: I mean I think first and foremost it comes back to the discussion we had earlier about the people being the important part of the business right so yeah. if, if that's the mentality you have which is certainly the mentality we have here is not really I mean safety's not an option it's not a thing it's just our normal way of doing things it's our normal methodology it's our normal outlook on work and what we're doing for work if any of our people don't go home safe like we're not doing our job yeah. And we're not running a business that I want to be involved with. So, you know, obviously it's demolition, any construction industry, you're not, you're going to be very, very fortunate to, to experience zero safety issues. Right. But our, our job is to create an environment where people can limit, you know, limit risk. And that's certainly what we do. And it starts from the bottom up and the, and the top down. I mean, it, 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 it's everyone has to buy into that. It's a culture, it's not a safety director making you sign a piece of paper saying you're gonna do something safely because that doesn't accomplish shit in my in my opinion. Yeah. It's everyone, you know, it's everyone just buying into the culture that that's how we do things here. And it's worked. I mean we, we certainly had some some issues that we've learned from that we won't certainly won't repeat, but you know, we buy in daily and that's that's our office people, that's our, our field people, that's our warehouse people. It's everyone. It's nothing gets overlooked when it comes to that. That's just that's just part of part of our culture
0: playing devil's advocate, as far as the business side of things go, you know, especially demolition, old schools, you're bidding up against companies that don't don't necessarily stress the importance of safety as much. And you could argue, you know, being safe, it's expensive, it slows you down. How do you stay competitive? And it's obvious, but I just, I want to ask the question, how do you, how do you make sure you're competitive against companies that are still that, that old school mentality?
1: Well, I mean, sometimes to be honest, sometimes it's tough. I mean, it, it's not even just safety of of individuals, but it's safety of surrounding properties and stuff that we that we run up to as as a as a challenge as far as staying price competitive. Yeah. You know, like for instance, we're demoing a building on a street frontage on, you know, in the suburbs and the sidewalk's supposed to stay like it is. So, our, our, you know, if we put in money to protect the sidewalk with steel plates and and clean them daily and all that stuff. I mean, are we going to be competitive with somebody who just says, "Oh, I hope we don't damage the sidewalk kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. But at the same time, we're not going to be that way. So it, it's kind of like find the customers that understand that, appreciate that and require it as mm. part of the bid so that we, we can remain competitive. And also, you know, Don will say this, Don will probably talk to you for two hours straight on this, but honestly, if you find something to do in a safe manner, it's likely the most productive manner. Whether you realize it or not, yeah, I mean that's just, and we truly believe that, and we preach it, and Don preaches it every time he visits a job site, and when people buy into that, it it seems to us that they end up working faster. Mm. So I don't know if that's fully true or not, but that's what we that's what we like to tell ourselves.
0: It's worked for you guys, so it's true for you, and I, I guess that's right. another that's another point too. You don't have to bid every job you're invited to, right? No, no, you don't
1: have to. I mean, we we certainly try to, and and many of us just because you know customers are depending on having our bid and having multiple bids for each trade so that their owner is, is happy and so that they're competitive. Yeah. But certainly, if there's a job that's not a right, that's not the right fit. I mean, we got to be open and honest from the get go on that. Hmm. And I, I don't know if you're getting at like if there's a job where there's fifteen demo companies bidding it, well, we're not likely to take a good look at it
0: yeah. just because of
1: there's bound to be some of those that you're talking about in the mix. Shortcut takers, whatever you want to call it.
0: Mm, so it's just hard to be competitive in something like that.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Unless we found out a miracle way to make a building go bye-bye that nobody else has thought of, you know, there's no way to be competitive against somebody who's not considering those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I know you guys are working on a lot as far as the future goes and some stuff can't talk about, some stuff can't talk about. What is the future of Milburn Demolition look like? What are you focused on going forward, you know, the next five, 10 years?
1: Well, it's funny. Can and can't talk about stuff is because we don't fully know yeah. anything for sure. So yep. it's silly to talk about things that may or may not happen. But I, I, I think if you ask me or Don, uh, in different rooms, I think we'd both say the last thing we're going to do is remain stagnant. Mm. So growing is necessary, in my opinion, to, to running a successful contracting business because as soon as you stop growing, as soon as you become stagnant, As soon as you stop bringing new people in at all levels, you know, people and cultures become complacent. And that's when I think problems start to occur. Safety cultures start to go down. Production starts to go down. People start worrying about their jobs. People start looking elsewhere for jobs. It just creates a cancerous environment, in my opinion. And so we're always looking to grow. And that that can mean a few things. Uh, One, I mean, as you know, we started primarily as interior selective structure, shoring, demolition scopes. And... In the last three years, we've started to take on more and more total demolition work and we're, we're pushing pretty hard on that pedal right now. It's just a, a natural transition. We like doing that work. We're good at doing that work. And so that's one way we're trying to grow. Another way is obviously researching potential alternate locations to do business, which that I will tell you is always on my head. There's yeah. no, no decisions made one way or the other, but that's something that's likely to happen. Yeah. And, and, and time frames. Yeah, you know, to be determined. Location is to be determined, but there's options there, and I think we're we're definitely going to pursue something. It's just a matter of making final decisions on when, where, and what. But the bottom line is, the growth is kind of a necessity.
0: If anyone right. has a uh, demolition company for sale, please let James Milburn know. And uh, yeah, is that I guess going full circle? So you started a company because you were looking at the opportunities available in the you know companies in the current market, and we're just like, well. There's a ceiling there that's very obvious. My last name doesn't match the name on the front door, so I can only, only go so far here. Is the growth one of the ways to prevent that from happening within your own company, to create those opportunities for anyone that wants it within your own company? That you know Their name's not Milburn. So how are you preventing what drove you to start your own business from happening within your own business as you grow?
1: So well, that's I mean you hit the nail on the head. The gr- without the growth that you're talking about, or that we're talking about, there's no way that Don is a partner now, right? Yeah. So Don yeah. became a partner first of the year, yep. and that that just came from him busting his ass and and being a somebody that the company needed. There's no other way to put it. He earned it, and there's other people that are going to earn increases. And I'm not talking about additional owners or anything like that because who knows? But without having enough revenue to support internal growth, and, and without enough transition, that you're right that that doesn't become a possibility for a lot of people. So I think the expansion and continued growth certainly helps people rise from within. And that's certainly the, that's definitely the intent or one of the intents of of doing what we're doing. So I don't know if I dodged the question too much, but I think we're not doing it for that reason, but it's one of the thoughts when considering these ways to grow.
0: What's the desire behind the growth? I mean, why, why not just kind of hang back? You're in a sustainable position, you're getting the work you need, have the workforce you need, have the equipment you need. What's the the drive, the desire to grow beyond where you guys are at now? That's a tough question. I think
1: I think there's just an internal drive that both of us have that we just want to be the best, and, and we want to really have a standout company and a standout product, and, and be recognized as a you know one of the top professionals in the industry. And and in order to do that, there's a ways you know, there's a ways to go. I and mean, there's a lot of great companies out there, and I'm friends with a lot of their owners through my involved in the National Demolition Association. So the growth is, again, it's, you can't get stagnant. Growing can mean different things. It doesn't have to mean more money. Certainly it should mean more money, but it's growing to become a better company and be prouder of what we're accomplishing
0: than what we are now. So that's that's really it. And I guess the, the revenue is a byproduct of that.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, if there was no chance for more revenue and more money, there's, you know, you why take the risk, so yeah. to speak. But yeah. at the same time, the risk of not growing to us is worse. The risk of not growing is a way worse scenario than the risk involved with growing.
0: That's a fascinating thought. There, before we're done here, coming up on an hour, what's what's the National Demolition Association? What do they do? What's your involvement in it? I think if someone they messaged me not too long ago on LinkedIn. I forget what you're some high up position or you're, you're going to be some high up position. What are you going to be at national demolition association?
1: Well, right now I'm on the executive board, which means uh, currently I'm the secretary. And the way our association works is you get, if you get elected to the executive board, you start as treasurer and you, and you naturally progress through treasurer, secretary, vice president, president, and then past president. So, okay. Uh, once you start that, you're on a 10 year commitment. I'm in year three of the 10 year commitment. Really, And that's, just this specific commitment of the executive board because before that I was on the board of directors, I think two or three different times. So that, and those are three year terms. So okay. I've been involved since I was in college. I mean, I, it's been, a, for me, it's a necessity. I mean, involvement is a necessity in whatever you do. I mean, it's like the 80, 20 rule, you know, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. And yeah. and that's kind of how I feel about the, that association is demolition to, to kind of break free of these, this bad dark cloud around the word demolition. I mean, Part of the work we're doing is trying to raise the level of competency in the industry and, and make sure that people work safer and that companies have access to training and new products and new technologies that can save injuries and prevent injuries and, and there's just all sorts of reasons to it not to mention there's there's four in-person you know board meetings every year that all members are invited to and, and so it's just being around the best in the industry four times a year networking you know, hitting the bar for a couple beers, whatever it is, there's there's just so much value to it. And it's and what I'm really excited about is in the last couple of years alone, we've introduced these training modules. We started with the project management level. You know, we're basically providing demolition specific training to people within our industry, which has never happened before, and is is a very worthwhile venture for us. We're really excited that we're tra- we're starting to get into field level training, which which will be a really big undertaking. But I think super important to keep our industry growing and and becoming a better, better looked at industry.
0: And so I guess all this illustrates the point that you don't have to be an old guy to have an important part of an association, right? No, no, absolutely
1: not. No. I mean, this isn't, this association isn't one of those, you know, you're the biggest company in the country, so you're automatically going to be the president here. I mean, that's, if anything I'd say that's the opposite. I mean, I mean, we certainly have those, right. We have involvement from the largest companies in the country and the world for that matter and they're all great guys and we all somehow find a way to get along with all of our competitors at these meetings. It's hard to describe unless you, unless you join it, but you know, whether you're, you're listening to this podcast, whether you're in the dirt world, scrap world, demolition world. I mean, there's plenty of associations to be involved with. Certainly if you're in demolition or, or any trade that's alongside, I would, I would recommend making an attempt to get involved because it's, it's helped me out. I mean, without the involvement in NDA, I would never have started this business.
0: Let's put it that way. Wow. That's a, That's a statement, huh?
1: That's a whole, yeah, it was a whole other level of comfort. Yeah. That network, you know, so.
0: Yeah, I guess to finish my earlier thought, yeah, someone got on on LinkedIn, messaged me, you know, hey, this guy's going to be, you know, future president of National Demolition Association, you know, James Milburn, you ought to, you ought to reach out to him and and get his thoughts about demolition, this and that. I'm like, well, I talk to James every once in a while because we work with him, but it was funny to both worlds coming together there.
1: Oh, no no kidding. Yeah, yeah.
0: In closing here, last question, what advice do you have for the young bucks, the young people in the industry, or maybe not in the industry, you know, maybe in college or maybe thinking about going going into this type of career? What kind of advice do you have for the younger, younger people?
1: Oh, that's tough. Where do I start? I mean, I being a, a college grad, I appreciate my time at college and I think it worked out for me. But finding something that you love to do is pretty crucial. And even if you don't love it, you got to like it, right? You got to enjoy it in some aspects. Either way, work is work. If you're like most people, you're going to end up working more hours than you do anything else, right? Yep. In your lifetime. So it's really important to like what you do. And to, I mean, let's face it, you got to work hard. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not working hard, you're, you're probably not going to be satisfied and you're not going to be successful. So and that's not all it takes, obviously, but it's got to start there. I have plenty of people here that, went to college plenty of people that didn't go to college uh, that doesn't really matter to us in the end it's really when we look for people we look for the attitude and there's plenty of ways to get that attitude so it's really actually interesting to see all these people combine from different backgrounds into the same you know same goal so
0: when you went to college but you weren't like well you know the degree is going to get me there because you worked through college right and i mean that practical experience probably went a lot further than the college degree it did
1: yeah, I mean, I mean I would say and I'm not trying to downplay college by any means. Yeah, but I, I, college I, I was college. Yeah. 75% of the benefit of college for me was the social and networking experience and learning how to, you know, work and live on your own, you know. And that's that's to me with the the value of college. I mean, I had classes in calculus, right, that I had to pass. I still don't know what I learned in calculus.
0: Yeah, I'm with you there. Um,
1: and even construction, related cases, you kind of learn how to learn about construction. You don't really learn anything without doing it, but you learn how to learn. You learn the terms. There's certain things that help. But I mean, the, the college experience for me was, you know, now I got customers of mine that are hiring me for business that I went to college with. Mm. So it was huge for me in that. But I can't speak on anybody else's experience cause it obviously it depends where you go and who you're with and what you do.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I had one more thought to you, so, and we're almost, we're almost done, I promise. Your your wife has a business as well, too, right? She does design work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have a business that consumes you. She's running a business. She's working. And then you have how many kids? Four?
1: Yeah, we have four daughters, eight and under. Yeah, yep. so
0: four little girls. How do you guys do that? How does that even work? Well, you can't think about it too much. I, <laughs> could, I could start there. <laughs> if you think about it too much at all you know you'll,
1: you'll start asking yourself the questions you just ask like the number one why yeah yeah um, obviously I don't mean that for the kids but the, the businesses and everything else that we do I mean it, you know I think we just both had the mentality like you know there's the one life to live we gotta, you got you got to do what you want to do and you got to and you got to give it your all and that's I mean I think we're just doing that on all fronts and I mean I, I couldn't I can't stress how proud of my wife I am I mean she she graduated from college with a teaching degree at a really bad time to graduate college with a teaching degree. Mm. She never got that dream job of, you know, teaching in a public school long-term and, and having the same classroom for 20, 30 years or whatever, you know, she hopped from kind of private school to private school, never making enough money to hardly, to hardly live off of. And, um, you know, after we, we kind of got together and we got married and she started decorating our first house and I'm like, Oh my God, you're really good. At, you're really good at this. And she's like, yeah. And I, I actually really like doing it too. And so she started kind of just doing it for friends and, and she, in the last two years, her and her partner—I mean, they've just blown up. They're super impressive and super good at what they do, and, and it's just a matter of her. She loves what she does, so she's got to do it. I mean, it, it makes things challenging, obviously more challenging and more the times more divided with family and everything else. But you got to kick it in gear while you still got it, you know. So that's what she's doing. That's what we're doing.
0: And hmm. just taking it as it comes, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's it's more involved than that. But I mean, you can't you can't overthink it because it's it's. I mean, I hate saying one of our foremen. I think you bet him, David. His famous quote is, It is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, there's something to be said for just kind of taking it as it comes and, and doing your best to steer things the right direction. But when it comes down to it, it's most of the stuff that's going to happen is going to happen. So, you going to make the most out of it.
0: Pretty cool. I wanted to touch on that because I feel like the family thing's important too.
1: Oh, super important. I appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Well, every time I go into your office, you have, uh, I don't even know how many pictures and drawings on your your whiteboard wall there
1: oh yeah i could send you the shot right now it's full it's full of stick figures and i love you daddy and (laughs) girls names and stuff and it's it's great yeah
0: yeah all that next to the bar cart there that's right yeah all right james good balance yeah
1: balance exactly
0: well i really really appreciate your time thanks for sitting down with us talking about the business milburn demolition if you're in need of uh, demolition services check out milburn in chicago I'm trying to advertise for you here get you some work it's
1: appreciate not, that it's not gonna work but thanks for having me
0: yeah might as well throw it out there <laughs> all right well Can't hurt. we'll talk soon all right Aaron. all right see you james